0: I uh, want to extend a very warm welcome to you tonight to Bay City. So glad that you could come here tonight. Tonight it's going to be a fantastic evening. Who here has heard Shane before? Who has not heard Shane? Oh, there's a couple of hands. You're in for a great surprise tonight. And uh, Shane, how many years have you been coming here? 13. Wow. And uh, Shane has been coming here 13 years, and throughout this time, he's just every time he comes, he just brings something of immense value. One of the things I want to encourage you tonight, if you have not bought a pen and a paper, you need to go and get one right now. (laughs) Because what you don't want to do is, something about value is this, value needs to be captured. Otherwise you'll hear a whole bunch of good things tonight and you'll think, wow, this is just amazing. And then tomorrow morning you would have forgotten most of it. So I encourage you tonight, write it down and apply it to your life. One of the things I have done... As I still read over Shane's notes, what he's bought over the last few years, and I make sure I'm still applying it to my life, and my life is much better off as a result. And I believe that tonight, if you will capture the value that's come across tonight, that you would apply it into your life, that you won't let it go to waste, I can promise you tonight that your life will shift. And uh, so I want to extend a warm welcome to you tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, why don't we stand and put our hands together for Pastor Dr. Shane Willard. Thank you, but-
1: Thank you, everybody. You can be seated. Oh, it's good to be back here with you. I love this place. 13 years, and we just keep doing it. And we'll keep, we, we've got it booked in for next year, too. So it's all, it's all good. All right. So we're going to, um, I want to put some language. We have two sessions tonight. So let me just run you through because uh, some people get very anxious if they don't know the schedule. So let me, um, let me run you through. Um, we're going to go to about five till eight or so. And then, um, and then we're going to take a break. And then we're going to come back. And, uh, and, and, and do a second one, um, because it's Saturday night, you're in church, so I'm feeling zero pressure to be an evangelist, right? When, and that's good, because I'm not a very good evangelist. What I am good is, is, is I'm a good teacher, and so we're going to, uh, I'm going to share with you some, some newer stuff I've been writing, and um, run it by you, and hopefully uh, we want, what we want, anytime I speak, I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I want us having more conversations, not less conversations about the Bible. Um, I want to I, I just, I want to do these things. And so uh, in between the sessions, uh, we have our table set up. Everything is available there in CD, DVD, USB, and direct download. Um, if, since the last time I was here, we've got four new ones. Um, And so I'm always putting new stuff out, always, 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 because I can't stand the thought of having nothing new to say. So I work two hours, I work two hours every single day writing new stuff. So uh, you can come pick that stuff out. Um, And the reason we do that is because we make a lot of money from it. Uh, and the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're called to bring heaven here and not simply just go to heaven when we die. So we have orphanages in China that look after mentally handicapped kids. We've got a, a rescue in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking. And so my business model is we live and we make our expenses and all of that, our plane tickets, stuff like that come from honorariums and love offerings. In 15 years of doing this, I've never, ever once made a demand on a church, not once ever. Um, and I don't plan on ever doing that. We, we want to live by faith. Um, but, but part of that is as well is um, we, we give that away. Um, so um, you could be a part of that um, by, by stepping back there and checking those things out. So a quick thing uh, before we get started. We're going to start in the book of Ephesians. So if you want to turn on an actual Bible, um, we, we'll start there. But, um, but a couple things uh, to introduce tonight. I, I felt like I've never once came here. Um, without seeking the Lord on what the word of the Lord might be for your church. I never ever want to preach because it's time to. I want to preach because I actually have something to say. And and what I felt like the word of the Lord was for, for Bay City was that Bay City needs to keep its accent. That there's a special voice that Bay City has, and you don't want to compromise your accent. Now, to have an accent, you got to embrace diversity. Unity has nothing to do with agreement. Unity has to do with our basic disposition towards somebody different than us and being willing to embrace people of different flavors. Um, and, and that could take that could take the form of of like you look around this church, and the age uh, disparity that, that's that, that's broad. Uh, there's there's racial um and cultural diversity. That's, that's a great thing. And so, so unity has less to do with somebody being exactly like something and more to do with our ability to embrace people who think a little bit different than us. Um, it, it, Paul said it this way in Romans 14, Never, ever, ever quarrel over a disputable matter. And then he calls all things disputable, which was really, really cool. Except for Jesus is the Christ. He was crucified. The resurrection is true. We should not be disputing um, between ourselves. We should be embracing um, one another. And so I want to put some language around that. But, but to understand this, uh, just a quick introduction on how truth works. So whether it's, whether it's, tr- we use the word truth or scripture or God or Jesus or whatever language we're putting around that, um, we, we got to make sure we include three parts anytime we talk about that or it loses its power. So, so the first part of any truth, whether it's the Bible truth or a God truth or, or whatever is the literal or the objective. So something happened. And, and even if something in the Bible isn't literal, like if, if for instance, a parable is not meant to be interpreted literally, but, but yet the, the objective nature of it is somebody told a story, right? So, so there's an objective, literal s- sort of grounding root. Let, let's even take something that's very central to our faith, the resurrection, right? Do, do we embrace the, 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 the literal resurrection of Jesus? Y- y- yes, we do. But is that the most important aspect of it? is it just literal? Like, let me tell you what I mean by that. You could give your whole life trying to prove that Jesus literally rose from the dead, like you were a lawyer, and you got your argument all lined out. And let's say you could even do it so well, it would stand up in a court of law. You could do it that way and still miss the entire point of it for life transformation, right? So, so if, if all you want is a literal resurrection, why not just worship Lazarus? Right, Of course, there's no such thing as a Lazarine right? or a Lazarite, right? Why? Be- because it's not just literal resurrection. There, there's a second part to it, and that second part to it is meaning or symbolic. So there's the objective, but there's also the symbolic or, or the meaning. And, and that's, that's just as or even more important. So somebody asked me at a Q&A a few weeks ago. They said, Shane, is the, is the cross just symbolic or is it literal? And I went, wait a minute, that's a dumb question. Because if you're going to say just, you got to say, is it just literal? Because the the, the meanings have endless meanings. And so you can't just, he was an Australian guy. And I said, is the Australian flag um, just literal? Or does it have a lot of meanings? And, and And if you were to walk outside and see someone burning an Australian flag and stamping on it, why would you be mad? It's just cloth and thread. I mean, if it's just literal, then it wouldn't make you angry. But the reason it makes you angry is for all the things it stands for underneath it. Like, like if your wife has a baby, you can acknowledge the literal breathing new life that's right there without that child meaning something to you. But you could also say, if, 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 if a doctor handed you your new daughter and you said, oh, she's the most beautiful girl in the whole world. And someone's standing right there and says, really? Literally prove that. Actually, there's gonna be a lot of women prettier than her. There's gonna be a lot of women uglier than her she's sort of somewhere in the middle. You should say she's the most average girl in the whole world, right? Well, that wouldn't make any sense to you because that's not how you meant that, right? Like th- this, you're not talking about literal beauty here. This is somebody that means so much to you that she redefines beauty, right? And so, and so there's the literal and then, or the objective, and then there's the subjective or the meaning, right? And then there's the eventual nature of something, right? So, so let's talk about resurrection for a second. resurrection is rooted in something objective, but there's also endless meanings. Like death doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. Like new creation can burst forth in the middle of this one. Like surprise as a possibility. Like if we were wrong about death, what else could we be wrong about? Like Jesus loved this world enough to resurrect and come back into it determined to fix the world and not destroy the world. This one writer called that good news, right? And so there is the literal, but there's also the meaning. But then thirdly, there's an evental nature to a truth. And evental means that the cross and resurrection isn't something that happened. Rather, it is something that redefines the way we see everything that happens after it. This isn't just simply one thing that happened one time. It's what then is, is described for Christians. For Christians, the cross and resurrection should not be something that happened, but it should be something that fundamentally changes the way we see all other happenings after that. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about um, a reasonable response to the cross and resurrection in terms of how we treat one another. Now, there, there's lots of meanings to the cross. Uh, I, I think I've done 28 different messages on the cross, and I don't think I've ever repeated one. And 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 I'm not wrong. Um, there's see, so in other words, the cross is one of those things that you could do. 30 messages on, and never repeat yourself and never be wrong. Because the cross isn't that which has one meaning. The cross is that which defies meaning. A, 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 a God so humble to allow himself to put skin on and then allow himself to be executed at the hands of a local government for the benefit of all of humanity is not something that gives us meaning. It's something that defies meaning. That is like, wow, that's something that calls meaning into everything uh, around us. And so, and so, there's one meaning of the cross that is the forgiveness of sins. And we embrace that, and we say yes, amen, but that gets a lot of playtime, that one. So I'm gonna leave that one be. And I'm not gonna leave it be because it's not important. I'm not gonna leave it be because it's not true. I'm just gonna leave it be because it gets all the playtime, right? There's another meaning of the cross that is, is the in-your-face confrontation to slave driving. And, 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 and we say yes and amen, and I'm gonna leave that be because it gets a bit of playtime as well. I want to talk to you about one of the eventual natures of the cross that I don't think gets enough playtime, and I think it should get more playtime, because I think it could really change our life if we embrace this part. This is uh, Paul talking about uh, the cross, because the, the cross surprised everybody. Jesus was supposed to take over Rome. The fact that he died, that was surprising. The fact that he rose again was more surprising, because in their experience, dead people stayed dead, right? The, 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 Hebrew, the Hebrew language doesn't even have a word for this. The, the, the Hebrew word for resurrection and the Hebrew word for surprise shares the same root. And that makes sense because if, if I if I died tonight and you came to my funeral on Wednesday and I showed up here next Sunday, surprise sort of cuts it, right? And so they were left trying to explore the endless meanings of this. And here is one of the meanings Paul gives us. If you could bring that first slide up now. Wow, can everybody see that? Is that big enough? That's amazing, and whoever did the new background, I wanna talk to you, I'm gonna, I want you to do all my backgrounds, that looks great. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so by making peace, and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing hostility so so one of the meanings of the literal cross and resurrection should be a group of people who who embrace a worldview that changes the way we see everything else after that, that says, because of the cross and resurrection, we don't want to just simply embrace our forgiveness and go to heaven. We don't want to just be set free ourselves, but we want to embrace a worldview that ends hostility between us. The the idea is, is that if we go back, no matter how big the disagreement is, if we're followers of Jesus and we start backing that out, no matter how far back we go, we're going to find that both of our hands are around the base of the cross and that should unite us in one new shared humanity. The idea is is that if, if there's only one God and God's holding me together and God's holding you together, then no matter what we disagree on, I cannot harm you because if I harm you, I'm harming myself because the same force is holding us both together. That in the cross of Jesus Christ comes a one new shared humanity, and thereby is the killing and the end of hostility. Now, Jesus hints at this kind of life in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me show you. This is uh, like three lines into the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus says. Here we go. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Woo, hold on a second. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Okay, when I ask you if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is? Is Jesus tying whether we're sons of God or not to our basic disposition in conflict? Blessed are people who look for a way to make peace. They're the sons of God. Well, what do you do with that? I'm not even going to begin to unpack the theological ramifications of that because it's not really my point tonight. I'm going to leave that with you to wrestle. I'm simply saying this. And I think we could all agree with this, however far you wanna take that theologically, that our basic disposition in conflict is very important to Jesus. The basic disposition that we carry ourselves when there's a hostile sort of conflict, when there's a disagreement, that that kind of thing is very important to Jesus. And unless you think it's just he said it one time, 34 verses later in the same sermon, he says basically the same thing, just a different way. Let me show you this. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, our basic disposition towards being a peacemaker is vitally important to Jesus and the type of life that Jesus wanted his followers to live. Which leads me to this question. In the last 30 days, how have we done with that? How have we done with it? Have we been the group of people who were willing to humble ourselves and take the first step towards somebody to end the hostility, or are we the people escalating the hostility? Christians, right, wrong, or indifferent should be the people in this town that are known for their peacemaking. They're known to be the people that in arguments, they're the ones who back down first. Let let, let me illustrate what what I mean by this, uh, by something that happened to me in 2013. Uh, 2013, I got a phone call that I never expected to get. Um, It was from uh, the top history expert in Jerusalem. Um, He's booked out two and a half years in advance. He had been listening to my stuff through some series of events. And he said, he said, listen, I'd like to invite you to Israel. um, And, um, you know, I want you to speak at our Messianic synagogue. uh, And then I'll, part of your compensation is I'll take you around and I'll teach you history um, 14 hours a day, right? He's like the top guy, right? So, of course, I took him up on this and I went there and we spent four days, 14 hours a day going around and he, he wanted to make it clear, he doesn't do tourist tours, he does academic tours and he, he just said, if you're looking to be entertained, I'm not your guy, but if you wanna learn, I'm your guy, right? And I was like, let's do it, right? So, um, this was day one and he's showing me something and this is, um, let me remind you, the top history expert in Jerusalem. He's in his 60s. He's lived there his whole life. He speaks good English, but English is not his first language. And he showed me something that amazed me. Now, English is your first language, so you'll understand what I did. I, I did I exclaimed something in English that confused him. This is what I did. He showed me something that amazed me, and I went, really? Really? Now, Because English wasn't his first language, he thought I was uh, in conflict. He thought I disagreed with him, and I wanted an argument. Here is the top, the top history expert in Jerusalem. Here was his response. Oh, shame. Peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong. Please let it be me. Well, I was confused. Which made it worse. Because my response to that was, What? (laughs) He, oh, shame. Peace between us is the most important thing. If the world looks at our conversation, let Jesus be glorified. The world needs to see us at peace more than I need to be right about anything. If one of us needs to be wrong, please let it be me. Well, that is so disarming. It was only at that moment that I realized he thought I was arguing with him. And I said, did you think, did you think I disagreed with you? He said, didn't you? And I went, okay, let's take a deep breath here. First, I humbly apologize for my tone of voice that made you think I disagreed with you. That's first. Second, you're the expert. Let's just get this straight. For the next four days, if I disagree with you, it's me, okay? You are correct. This is your field. This is your expertise. I said, I wasn't disagreeing with you, man. I was amazed. Like, I was going, really? Like, I was amazed. And he went, were you amazed? I said, bro, I was amazed. He said, oh, good. He said, because I knew I was right about that, but I just didn't. He said, still peace between us. He said, Shane, if the world sees our conversation, they should never see us in conflict because the cross of Jesus Christ unites us. And I thought, now that's a guy that doesn't just believe in Jesus. That's a guy that's allowed the nature of the cross to affect fundamentally the way he sees all other things. That's a guy that could have eaten me for lunch in an intellectual argument in his field. And yet he chose not to, which leads to all kinds of questions. Like if, 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 if our basic disposition in conflict is very important to Jesus, it leads us to a couple questions about peacemaking. And the first one is how does hostility work? And if, if we understand how hostility works, then we can get our head around how peacemaking works. And so there's this great story in the Old Testament um, that I think illustrates very well how hostility works. It's a very long story. So I'm only going to show you a few scriptures in just a second. I'm going to tell the basic story. And it's a story we're all familiar with. It's the story of a guy named Samson. And Samson was a particular uh, lunatic, uh, he was rebellious, he had no regard for the rules, he had no honor for his parents, uh, he was out of flip and control, and yet God still used him mightily, which is really, really comforting. For, for, for us should be, that, that we don't have to have all our stuff together for God to use us mightily. Um, that, that, that's never been true. Uh, Samson was out of control. He falls in love with a Philistine woman, which was an absolute no-no. He goes and says to his parents, I have fallen in love with a Philistine woman. They essentially say, please don't. She worships other gods. He says, I don't care what you think. I love who I love. And so he goes to see her behind their back, um, on the way to see her behind their back. Evidently, he runs into a lion. Um, um, now, if, if you're sneaking out behind your parents' back, um, one good way to get caught is to run into a lion. That is, and, and evidently, he was skilled enough uh, to kill the lion, um, and then he goes on to see her. Uh, later in the story, he goes back to see her, and the lion's carcass is still laying there. The, the city council hadn't cleaned it up because, you know, the world's getting better. So he, the, the lion's carcass sitting there, and evidently bees had taken nest in the lion's carcass, which is quite odd. Then he breaks every rule known to man about kosherness, touching dead things, eating things out of dead things, and he reaches into the dead thing, and he takes food out of it to, to feed himself, uh, which is, once again, a complete disregard to kosherness and, and rules of, of that day. He then goes to see her, and he's hanging out with their family. And in hanging out with their family, he decides, I'm going to trick these people. And he says, I'm going to prove I'm smarter than them. And he makes a bet with them. And he says, I bet I could tell you a riddle that you don't know the answer to. And they go, okay. And he goes, if I tell you a riddle and you guess the answer, I'll give you 30 pieces of clothes. But if you can't tell me the answer, you owe me 30 pieces of clothes. So they go, bet there's a bunch of us. He goes, and then he makes up a riddle off the top of his head. Now, of course, they're not going to know the answer to the riddle. Why? Because he just made it up, right? No one else saw what he saw. And he says, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And it says that they couldn't figure it out. Of course they couldn't figure it out. Why? He just made it up, right? And so they start pressuring his fiance. And they say, listen, do whatever you got to do to get him to tell you the answer. So she goes home and does whatever she has to do to get him to tell her the answer. Who knows what that is? Anyway, right? So she goes home, does whatever she has to do to get him to tell her the answer, and he tells her, but he says, you keep it to yourself. She doesn't do that, and she goes and tells her family members the answer. On the last day that they had, they guessed the answer to the riddle. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And then Samson, and I'm quoting this straight out of the Bible, says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have never got the answer. Right? So if you're looking for a life verse, there you go. Right? If you you had not plowed with my heifer, you would never have got the answer. So they pay him back by giving his wife to somebody else. And so when he comes back to pick up his wife, they say, oh, no, we gave her to somebody else. Uh, Do you want her little sister instead? Like women, to be a woman in those days would have been horrendous. You had no choice in these matters. Well, Samson gets really, really ticked at this, and he owes them 30 pieces of clothes. So what he does is, is he goes and kills 30 of their family members and then strips them naked and brings the 30 pieces of of clothes back to them and says, I killed 30 of your family members. I owe you 30 pieces of clothes. Here you go. This guy loses a bet and kills 30 people. That's out of control. That is completely bonkers, man. Like, if that happened today, you'd spend the rest of your life in jail. In those days, they wrote stories about you, right? So so he loses a bet, kills 30 people, gives gives them their clothes. They then respond by burning his wife's family at the stake. He then responds by tying foxes together, setting them on fire, and burning the fields down for the whole year. That's a nation's entire economy. They then respond by sending a thousand men after him, and he picks up the jawbone of a donkey, and he kills them all. They then respond by enslaving him and putting his eyeballs out. He then responds by getting them to take them to the temple during a festival, and he pulls the entire building down, and everybody dies. So, what starts out as a joke no one understood escalates into everybody dying. A joke no one understands, to 30 people dying, to an entire family being burned, to an economy being ruined, to a thousand people dying, to enslavement and blindness, to everybody dying. That's how escalation works. Now, if you're married, you understand how this works, right? So, how many of you married people have ever had an argument with your spouse that started out over how to cut a tomato properly? Yep. Yep. And then it escalates into insults about the other person's mother, right? Now, now sometimes you can insult your mother-in-law because she's insultable, but sometimes the insults are simply an escalation from something. For, hey, have you, ever, have you ever been in a marriage situation and the argument escalated to something and you both sort of look at each other and go, how did we get, how did this turn into that? right? That's the how escalation works. So, so let me show you a few of the scriptures here because there's a key line in it that helps us understand how hostility works. Here we go. Next slide. I was so sure that you thoroughly hated her that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. And Samson, and this is the line I want you to focus on. And Samson said to them, this time I have the right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. And then he repeats himself. This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines. Hang on a second. He killed 30 of them already. How's he innocent? This time I'll be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I really do them harm. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, of criminal statistics, 90% of all murders in Australia are morality-based. In other words, somebody just walking into a restaurant and stabbing someone, Very, very rare. It's always, why did you kill the person? Well, if you knew what he did to me, you would understand. Like, it's it's because of what they did, I have a right to do harm to them. This continues on. Next slide. Then the Philistines says, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear that I'll be avenged on you, and after that I'll quit. (laughs) In other words, once I get one up, then I'll stop. And that's how hostility works. Hostility works, I won't stop until I'm one up. Peacemaking is the opposite of that. Peacemaking is acting first in humility to end the hostility. So this is how the hostility cycle works. Next slide. So hostility works this way. There's offense, right? So somebody did something uh, that that didn't set the right way. It's hurtful. It's offensive. Now, Now the ball's in our court. We're offended. Now the ball's in our court. Do we escalate it or do we become peacemakers like Jesus called us to? Right? Here's the second one. Then you dehumanize the adversary. This time I have a right. Why do you have a right to hurt somebody? Well, because they hurt me. Which is the exact opposite of the life Jesus called us to live. That's the exact opposite of the message of the cross. The message of the cross is while we were hostile to God, God acted first to make peace with humanity. Well, if that's the message of the cross, while we were hostile to God, God acted first to make peace with humanity, and we benefited from that, the natural response to that is to act first to de-escalate the situation, not to take our right. Listen, right, wrong, and wise are three different things. Do you have a right to get even? Maybe. Is it right? Maybe right or wrong isn't the question. What is wise is the question. And Jesus asked us the better question, which is, how can we be peacemakers in this situation? And third one, an unwillingness to take responsibility for our part in it. If you go back and read that story, at no part does Samson go, you know what, probably should have just went down to the target and bought you 30 pieces of clothes. I uh, I shouldn't have killed 30 of your family members. Like, think about that. Would Samson ever be invited to preach at any church in the world today? Oh, here's a guy that lost a bet and killed 30 people. (laughs) Welcome. Um, Four, then there's escalation. A bet no one understands escalating into 30 people dying, escalating into families getting burned to death, escalating into uh, fields being burned down, escalating into a thousand people dying, escalating into something else. It's just the escalation cycle. Next slide. Um, Then there's holding the other person responsible for the escalation. Like I'm not escalating it, you are. Since you've done this, then I'll do that. And then number six. A failure to learn, which leads to repeating the pattern. Which is why the great author on marriage, Emerson Egricks, he talks about marriages getting on crazy cycles. That without love, she responds without respect. And without respect, he responds without love. And around and around. And we think we're getting the other person because we have a right because they had a thing with us. But at some point, somebody's got to act first and make peace. Now, now this, this leads me to a few observations about peacemaking. Next slide. So the cross wasn't solely about forgiveness and freedom, but the end of hostility. Now, let's keep going. So the cross was a physical manifestation of a new way to live. The most loving person acts first to end the hostility. Romans talks about us being hostile to God, and he didn't respond with hostility. He responded with love. So he's like, I- I'm going to end this. It's, 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 I, I, I can't think of a better example on this earth than the guy that could have decimated me in an argument chose to, oh, peace between us. The world needs to see Jesus glorified, not me be right. Which leads me to all kinds of questions about where have we prioritized being right in somebody else's eyes over letting Jesus be magnified to an outside world. So let's say it this way. Next slide. So peacemaking then is not passive. It's charging in with a different way to live and changing lives. Peacemaking isn't sitting back and just taking whatever someone gives you. Peacemaking is being active and intentional to be the person who acts first to disarm the situation and lower the escalation, which leads me to all kinds of questions about our churches and our families. Is there anything going on in this church or in your family that you could be the person to act first tonight to end the hostility? And that is being a Jesus person. Now, there's so many ways I could teach this. Sometimes it's best to go, here's five strategies to be a peacemaker. Um, And sometimes it's best to just show you images from Jesus's life to, that talks about what it means to be a peacemaker. So in Matthew 5:43 or something, he, I've already showed you the passage. He says, blessed, you've heard to pray for your, your friends and bless, bless your friends, but, but, but crush your enemies. I say to you, pray for your enemies and bless those who despitefully use you so that you may be children of God. Now, four verses before that, he gives three things we could do to be peacemakers. Now, remember, he's speaking to first century Galilean class eight peasants. There was a nine class class system in the Roman Empire. And he's talking to class eight people who were being crushed on a regular basis by people stronger than them, by enemies, by the Roman Empire, by imperialism, right? And here's what he says. Next slide. So first image is he says, turn the other cheek. So this is leading up into pray for your enemies. Bless those who despitefully use you. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one. Now, what's going on here? Like, are we just supposed to let someone beat us up? How far are we supposed to go? Now, to understand this, we have to understand first century Roman class systems. First century Roman class systems. Next slide. So there was a nine-layered class system. Uh, people who lived in Galilee were in general class eight. If you want a great read on this, you can read a book called The Sermon on the Mount by a Franciscan monk named Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R. And they, they talk about how if, if I was class one in the Roman class system, but you were class eight, if we had a problem and I wanted to humiliate you, I, I, would, I would slap you with my left hand. But if we were equals... Um, If if we were both class one, I would slap you with my right hand. The reason is, is that in that culture, your right hand was clean. Your left hand was dirty, largely because that's the one you use to wipe your bum. So if I was class eight and you were class, if I was class one, sorry, and you were class eight, I wouldn't even waste my good hand on you. I would hit you with my left hand because it's essentially saying you're only worth my poo-poo hand. Okay. Now, Now, notice the words that Jesus says. If anyone slaps you on your right cheek. Well, if I'm going to slap you on your right cheek, what hand would I use? My left hand. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. What's he doing? He's saying if someone is addressing you as less than them, do not retaliate. Do not fight back. What you simply do is in a nonviolent way, you present to them the side of you that makes them strike you as an equal and they will not do it. They'd rather walk away from the conflict than hit you with their good hand. This is a metaphor around nonviolently drawing a boundary that says, you will not treat me as less than you. I will turn the other cheek. So if you're here and you've ever known someone who was in an abusive situation and their husband was using this passage to justify it, well, we should just turn, or you're thinking, well, I, sh- I shouldn't stand up for myself. Jesus told me to turn the other cheek. No, it's actually the exact opposite of that. It's don't fight back, Don't retaliate and don't ever intentionally hurt somebody, but only present the side of you that makes them address you as an equal. And if they're not willing to address you as an equal, you do not have to put up with that crap. Get out. It's turn the other cheek. It's be a peacemaker. It's draw past, not passive, draw intentional nonviolent boundaries. The, the, The next one he says, this is the next verse. Next slide. The tunic and the cloak, he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, to understand the first, you got, we got to understand Roman social law. In, in this one, we got to understand Jewish law. So, next slide. So, in this one, in Deuteronomy, if someone sues you and you can't pay, then you could give them your tunic as a promise. Right? So, in other words, if I owed you money and you came demanding payment and I couldn't pay, I could give you my outer coat, hey, I promise I'll pay you later. I promise I'll pay you later. Now, to understand this, we got to understand that in Galilee, some historians estimate that they were under 87% taxation. 87%. 50% of their fish, 30% of their grain, 12.5% to Caesar as the son of God. Roman roads tax, temple taxes, and the dodginess of the tax collector. These people were losing family land that had been in their family since the book of Judges. And the top 3% of Roman sympathizers in Jerusalem were taking advantage of them and and, and demanding payment. They would have been going through this all the time. Now, there's only two pieces of clothes. There's the tunic and the cloak. Essentially, Jesus is saying, if someone's going to take your outer coat, just get naked. What's he talking about? Next slide. In Hebrew culture, being naked is not shameful. Seeing nakedness is shameful. So essentially Jesus is saying the man being sued is placing his shame on the other while being peaceful. Because what kind of person would take both clothes? Essentially the principle is this, that if you want to expose greed, don't confront it, simply be uber generous. Let, Let me explain what I mean, right? So if you're having a nice meal with somebody and the waiter comes by and says, did you guys enjoy everything? Yes, we did. How do you want me to do the bill? And if you say, split the bill, and the other person says, simultaneously, I'll take the check, that person's generosity has exposed the, my greed, right? So when that happens, if both, people, if, if both people speak at the same time, and one says, split the check, and the other one says, I'll take the check, what ends up happening is, is they both start arguing over the check, but the one has already played his hand and said, I want it split up to begin with. But the generosity of the generous man has now exposed the greed in the heart of the greedy man that the best way to do these things is to be uber generous. Here's the third one he says. Next slide. He says, go the extra mile. And if anyone forces you, the key word there is forces, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, to understand the first, got to understand Roman class systems. The second, got to understand Jewish law. In this one, we have to understand Roman military law. Galilee was occupied by the Roman military. And in Roman military law, if I was a Roman soldier, I'm class one, you're class eight. And if I've got to walk three miles today, I've got a 70 pound pack. I'm not carrying it myself. I'm going to get one of you lowlifes to carry my pack so that I can walk in comfort. But here's what Roman military law said. It said, I could force any of you to go one mile. But if I force you to go more than a mile, If I force you to go more than that, I'll be court-martialed a day's pay in order to make up for the taxes that they now cannot pay. So Jesus, this would have happened in Jesus' world all the time. And he says, okay, if someone forces you to go one mile, here's how you handle that. At the one mile mark, take off running because you'll have a Roman soldier chasing you down, trying to get you to stop. Get a reputation for being a little bit crazy and uber generous. If they're gonna force you to go one mile, at the one mile mark, take off and go two, and they'll stop asking you. This is absolute genius stuff about how to non-violently resist oppression. And it's the very next verse he says, pray for those who despitefully use you, bless your enemies, Be peacemakers that you may be known as sons of God. The last image I want to cover in this session is this. Next slide. Is to heal the ear. So there's a scene from Jesus's life where some people are being particularly hostile toward him. This, This is the end of hostility. This is the end of the thought that because you offended me, I have a right to do back at you until I get even and then I'll stop. When we look at Jesus' life, we find this section where they're being quite hostile to Jesus. And this is what happens. It says that the servant of the high priest, and it actually names him Malchus, was leading the charge to arrest and kill Jesus. Now that tells us a few things. It tells us that he's the next high priest. He's learning the the job. It also tells us he's very important because one, it names him, and two, the people in charge are following him. This is a a critical moment. And he's he's leading these people. He's charging to have Jesus killed. And it says that one of Jesus' companions took out a knife and cut off the dude's ear which is so weird because he cuts off his ear in front of the soldiers and they're not arrested. Like, was it legal to chop off a man's ear in the first century? He does it in front of witnesses and the people's response is sort of like, these crazy Jews, right? What's going on here? And we all know who cut off the guy's ear. Who was it? Peter. How do we know that? Well, Matthew says it was just, a certain companion of Jesus. Mark says it was one of Jesus' friends. Luke says it was one of Jesus' disciples. John said it was Peter, right? So John's throwing him under the bus, right? And so there's all kinds of things going on here. To understand why it was legal, we got to understand Levitical law. The reason it was legal was because of who Malchus was. He's the next in line to be the high priest. Now, to be a rabbi, you had to earn it. You had to have credentials. You had to go to school. You had to be certified. To be a priest, you just simply had to be born. So there was a, there was a high potential for evil priests. And the people didn't want an evil man representing them before God. And so, and so they had to come up with a way to deal with this. And the way they, deal, they, they chose to deal with it was based out of Leviticus 21. So this is—sorry, uh, it might be Leviticus 20. It's either Leviticus 20 or 21. And and this gives gives the things that disqualify a high priest. So this is the rules that they would have lived under. Check this out. This is Leviticus 21. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face. That is quite graphic, isn't it? I'm sorry, sir, you are next in line to be the high priest, but something mutilated your face. (laughs) You are now disqualified. Um or a limb too long, odd, or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. (laughs) Which is unbelievable. Like, honestly, would you agree with me that if someone held you down and crushed your testicles, your last concern is whether or not you could be a priest, right? It's like, oh, no, they crushed my testicles. I can't be a priest anymore. Shoot, right? No, if someone held you down and crushed your testicles, you're just looking for a way to die, right? My other question about this is, who was the inspector, right? Like, okay, sir, uh, no mutilated face. Check, your limbs look okay. Check, no scabs. Check, there's just one more check we have to do. just an odd thing, No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near. Here's what they did. Josephus, Brad Young, some other authors like that, they they point out that in that day, if they wanted to disqualify somebody from being a priest, they would just give them a blemish. And the easiest thing they could do is they would, they would just, uh, they would essentially pierce their ear and pull. Uh, That would hurt. You would get over it but it would give you an obvious blemish that everyone could see this person is disqualified. So, so this guy is next in line to be the high priest. And P- Peter essentially saying, you're fixing to kill the real temple. You have no business serving in the temple made with the hands of men. I'm going to make sure you never do. And he takes out a sword and he, and he cuts his ear. My Sunday school teacher taught me that he was trying to kill him and missed. Well, that doesn't make much sense because if, if, I'm, trying to, if I'm trying to cut your head off, and I hit you in the ear hole. That's a direct hit. He obviously wasn't trying to do that. He he more than likely came up behind him and just flicked it off. And uh, now what, what does that do? That permanently disqualifies this guy from ever serving in the temple. He now has a blemish. He can never serve again. What was Jesus's response? He reached down and he put his ear back on his head. But that guy was leading the charge to kill him. I know. But the character of the risen Christ ends hostility. He doesn't escalate violence. Oh, that guy, So any message of Jesus that says, if you don't do exactly what he wants, he's going to destroy you. That is not the message of Jesus. It doesn't matter if there's a 25 foot cross over the top of the building. What you see in Jesus's life and in all discussions of it is that Jesus is the one acting first to end the hostility. This guy is leading the charge to kill Jesus, and Jesus is sure enough in himself and in his standing with God that he's willing to not only heal this man, but to restore him back to the ministry office of the temple. That's Jesus. You're filled with the Spirit of Jesus. Which leads me to this question. Are you an ear cutter or an ear restorer? But Shane, they're wrong. I know. Ear cut or ear restore? Shane, do you know what they did? Yes, ear cut, ear restore, your choice. Is Jesus just simply a bullet point on a pamphlet to you or is is Jesus actually an evental thing that fundamentally shifts the way you see all other things after that? Those are two different things. And here's why this is so important. Tomorrow at this church or at the church you go to, there might be 20, 30, 40 first time visitors That come through these doors. And some of them have their ear in their hand. Somebody told them somewhere that they've done too much, that they've been disqualified. And if this church doesn't do anything else, it should be the place where people get fresh starts, second chances, do-overs. This should be the place where we put people's ears back on and never look for a way to take off their ear. May we never be the people googling Uh, church leaders finding a way to chop their ear off. But may we always be the one going, our Lord put the guy's ear back on and he was trying to kill him. You're doing less than that. We're going to put your ear back on your head. We are committed to the process, whatever that looks like, to make sure that your ear gets reattached. That's the end of hostility. When someone's trying to kill you and you're healing them, peace. Peace between us is the most important thing. So good sermons are not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with, they're meant to be wrestled with. So a couple of questions about this so we can wrestle. Next slide. Have we received the cross that forgives us while rejecting the cross that ends hostility? Like it's, it is perfectly possible because the cross has more than one meaning to embrace one meaning of the cross without embracing the others. So have we embraced the cross that gives us mercy, but then we find ourselves wanting justice for everybody else? Well, that's not cool. You can't want mercy for yourself and justice for everybody else. You can't do that. That, that doesn't work. You, you can't receive Jesus acting first towards you, and then you escalate hostility towards somebody else because they deserve it. That doesn't work. Next slide. Is there any place that we're escalating violence right now? Think about your family. Is there any argument that could stop if you just stopped it? Is there any conflict in this room that could stop if you just stopped it? Uh, Next one, next. Where do we need to act first and be a peacemaker? Somebody's got to be the loving person and in the hostility. Somebody's got to be the one going, oh, peace between us. Somebody. Somebody's got to be the one that sends the gift to someone who tried to hurt them. Somebody's got to do that. Somebody's got to be the one answering softly. Somebody, Next slide. Whose ear do we need to repair? Is, is there anyone who we've taken their ear off and it's probably time we put it back on? It's probably time we did that. Now, now, listen, I want to be clear about this. Some people are toxic. They are. Some people are going to return to their vomit and you don't have to be there when they do. But as a worldview, our first default button should be, is there any way to put your ear back on here? Is it? any way that we can de-escalate this. Next one. Jesus has given his life for us. What's our offering going to be back to him? Is, is the cross and resurrection a bullet point of what we believe, or is it an evental thing that changes the way we see everything? Maybe we can think about this one more way. Next, next slide. What if the cross was God saying, how far do I have to go for you all to get along? What if that's one of the messages of the cross? How far do I have to go for you all to get along? You were hostile to me. I acted in love towards you. When someone's hostile towards you, can you act in love towards them? How far do I have to go for you all to get along? So let's think about that for the next 15 minutes or so. Uh, We're going to take a break now and then come back. Please forgive me for going six minutes over what I said. Peace between us is the most important Thing. In, in the 15-20 minutes if you come by our table um, we can do I can. I, I'll be there to do the automatic downloads the, the USBs and hard copy stuff um, we've got our team back there thanks for coming out tonight we'll be back about 15 20 minutes grace